Well, that was a clip from the movie uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, uh, in which we're going to look at uh, throughout our uh, teaching time today. Because even though not every family uh, looks like that family, uh, there is a lot of power in words. And throughout this teaching, we're going to be uh, looking at that. Actually, when we use these clips, what I want you to do is to try to imagine you in your relationship world. Maybe with uh, your spouse if you're married, your family, uh, your coworkers. What does that look like? Now, today we're going to talk about words because words are very powerful. And the Bible has a lot to say about them, and we're going to unpack this a little bit. The first scripture I want us to look at is in Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 21. Proverbs is kind of in the middle of the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And uh, Proverbs is just a book of wise sayings, and we'll look at several of them today. Let's read this first one out loud together uh, on three. One, two, three. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Pretty powerful that our words have both death and life attached to it. You know, we live in a world in which there are words that are flying around all the time, right? In fact, right now you don't see them, but there are words that are flying. I hope some of you aren't texting right now. But if you are, uh, look, I caught a couple of you, didn't I? But there are words everywhere. They come out of our mouth. They come out of text. They come out of our blogs. Uh, we tweet words. We Facebook uh, words. Words are all over the place. And the words that we throw out there are powerful. And they can either build up a relationship or they can tear a relationship down. Words can either make a problem uh, that's a problem better, or words can make a problem worse. They can help someone understand a flaw, or they can crush a person's spirit. Words can instruct someone towards growth, or they can lead a person down a path of pain. Now, speaking of growth, I want to begin by sharing with you a story in which some guy spoke some words into my life, that were hard words, but they were words that um, really took me down a growth path. I meet with a couple of guys uh, regularly on Wednesday mornings. And uh, these two guys, let's call them uh, Sam and Joe, uh, we meet every Wednesday at 6 in the morning. And Sam uh, is uh, a person who's pretty straightforward, uh, kind of says it the way that it is. And this group tries to be honest and truthful. And I was sharing a story one time in which the story that I was sharing actually put me in a better light than what I actually was, like I made myself look better than what I actually did. And I'm telling this story when all of a sudden Sam interrupts me and uh, he looked at me and he said, that's not how it happened. I'm the pastor, you know? And I kind of looked at him and I said, what do you mean that's not how it happened? That's exactly how it happened. I said, how do you know anyways? He said, I was there. And then Sam went on to give some more words by saying, Chris, sometimes you have a tendency to kind of stretch the truth. I wouldn't say that you lie, but sometimes you make things sound better than they actually are. 
Now, at this point, I'm really hoping that Joe's going to step in and he's going to be like, hey, 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 don't give the pastor such a hard time. He's our uh, you know, man of God, the Holy One, and uh, you know, we, we should trust him. I, I think you're you know, blowing this out of perspective a little bit. And he said this. He said, well, what's your perspective, Joe? Well, actually, Chris, you do do that. Sometimes you put a little jam and jelly on a piece of old stale bread. Just call it stale bread. Don't call it stale bread with jam and jelly. No, it's going to be wonderful to eat because it's not. You've got to love guys who know how to use words to pick out your flaws. You know what I mean? But you know what? That was some of the most helpful advice I've ever got. Because, see, as a pastor, as someone who publicly communicates, it's very easy to take a story and make it sound a lot better than it is. Because you want to get a laugh. You want to get some emotion. You want to move the audience in some way. And when these two guys shared these powerful words to me, it really made a difference. It made me go down a road where I would grow and become healthier. They told me what I needed. And through God's grace, then I've really grown in that area of my life. You see, folks, when you use a word or a phrase, and it says something to a person, it either spurs them on to spiritual growth, or it spurs them on to growing closer or further away from God. So it either brings a person closer to God, or it draws them further away. And that's why how we use our words is so important. We need some verbal discipline in our lives, knowing that when we speak, that we know when to say a word, and just as important, we know when to withhold a word. And Jesus is our example in doing this. Jesus always knew exactly what word to say or what word not to say in every moment. And why did he do that? Because he knew how to balance two things, truth and grace. He knew how to put them together so that we could, as his followers, know how to follow that example. And that's the key to godly communication. It's the key to healthy communication. Grace and truth mixed together. You know, sometimes we don't think that our words have much power, but they do. They really do. In fact, 1 Peter 4.11 says this. Let's read it out loud together. Uh, All together, let's read this out loud. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Now, very, very interesting. Do you see how it starts out? It says, if. If you speak. There's a lot of times you probably shouldn't speak. Right? So if you speak, you should do as one who speaks what? The very words of God. In other words, that when you speak, sometimes God's going to use your words to impact somebody else. So you need to be careful in the way that you express your words. Now, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, this sounds pretty good so far. I want to be a part of a people, a community of faith that balances truth and grace, and we put it together. There's only one problem with this whole scenario. 
there's one thing I didn't talk about that sometimes creeps in. You know what it is? Sin. Sometimes you don't want to speak nicely to people. Sometimes you could care less what God says. You want to say your words. And God says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You need grace. You need truth. And sometimes we choose the third option, sin. And sometimes our words can actually make our relationships worse rather than better. Now, last week, Chuck uh, taught on the tongue. And today I want us to continue to look at that as we look at James uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And uh, we've been looking at James throughout the summer. And so I'd like us to just look at this passage again. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Folks, you see the progression of what happens when we allow our tongue to not be tamed and to get out of control? Things happen if we're not careful with our tongue. And so for the rest of our time, what I want to do is give you five examples, five areas where the tongue causes damage and how we can improve upon focusing in on those. So five big areas. The first area is this. The first area is name-calling. Name-calling. Every single one of us falls into this at different times. We're familiar with it. That's why when you saw that opening scene by Cheaper by the Dozen and you heard the kids say, Hey, you moron! Hey, you idiot! Hey, Barbie! Because she looked, you know, uh, the Barbie-ish type. That we just laugh and it's funny and it's no big deal. And sometimes name-calling can kind of be fun and funny at the first part, but it really goes south after that. A couple years ago, I was giving an illustration uh, about some of my mom's family who lives down in the hills of Kentucky. Now, I love them. I love to hang out there. We go uh, down there usually uh, once or twice in that area at least, and we hang out with folks. But there's a lot of funny stories about uh, my family on that side. And so while I was telling this story, I used the word hillbilly. I didn't think anything about it. People were laughing. We're having a good job. I'm like, you know, hey, I'm one, you're one, we're all one. And there's a lot of them down in Kentucky. And people were laughing and they laughed. But a few days later, one of the kindest men in our church approached me and said that he was offended by what I did. And I didn't get defensive. I just kind of said, well, why is that? And he shared that he was raised in the neighborhood on the south side of town here in Muncie, in which people make fun of that neighborhood all the time as a bunch of dumb hillbillies. And he said every time that I would give an example, he had a flashback of a neighbor or a friend or someone in his community and what they would have felt being called that. Folks, it didn't take a day to patch these things up. It took a couple of months. But he and I are good now, and and he taught me a valuable lesson. But just a name-calling. Sometimes even when you don't think there's much behind it, sometimes there can be a lot of power in our words. And I realized in that moment what a name can do to bring out emotion in a person. 
You see, folks, every single day you're tempted and I'm tempted to give somebody a label, to stereotype them, to talk about them in some way. Someone comes into work. Someone comes into the office. Someone comes into the factory floor. And everybody says something, and that person is labeled. I can remember when uh, my family moved from Marion, Indiana, to Anderson, Indiana, and my dad, uh, who was a pastor, uh, had moved our family. And more important than anything else, I just wanted to fit in to this group of uh, people at my high school. And when I got there, uh, I didn't want anyone to know what my dad's occupation was. Because when you're in the ninth grade, you don't want anyone to know that you're a preacher's kid. Well, somehow, uh, one of the fellow students found out that I was. And I'll never forget, he started calling me, Hey, preacher boy! Preacher boy! And it's not a big deal now. If he said that, I'm like, yep, that's who I am, preacher, and sometimes I'm pretty boyish, okay? Um, But that was not the thing you want in the ninth grade when you're walking down a hall with lockers on both sides and there's a little twerk, I mean, a person who is uh, yelling, preacher boy. And you know, I laugh about it now, but you know what? In ninth grade, that was some painful stuff, some hurtful stuff, things that I thought, man, I just don't want people to know. In fact, I even started going to, to, to lie. I lied and said, no, my dad's not a pastor. He's a toolmaker because 20 years before that, he was a toolmaker. Words are powerful. They can hurt. You see, the thing we don't realize is we never know what somebody else brings to a conversation. We don't know what they've been dealing with on that day. We don't know necessarily their background. We don't know what's been floating in their heads. And a lot of times, we don't even realize that just a little anger, a little criticism, a little name-calling can hit a place that sends people straight to the ground. Let's look at this next proverb, this wise saying. Uh, It says this, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So do you want to take a sword or do you want to have healing words of compassion? Now, one of the ways that we typically deal with verbal discipline is uh, not like this, but it is the way that we should. One of the things in name-calling, the first thing you have to realize, if you say a name, apologize. It's not that big. It's not that hard to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I think I crossed the line there a little bit. Maybe you create a new name for that person. You know, have you ever known this, kind of the nicknames we give to people are always from their bad attributes? (laughs) Like, rarely do we pick a name that's like, you know, Jolly Joe. No, we call him Fruitcake Joe, right? Because we switch things around. And in the same light, we need to be able to think about that. So I apologize. Maybe I think of a new name uh, that builds that person up something good. But you own it. And uh, you just deal with what what it is. You exercise some verbal discipline. You ask for forgiveness. You do the patch-up work that you need to. And you know what? I've never experienced this situation before. That if I've said something and I feel like, oh man, maybe I should go and apologize. Uh, I'll I'll just, I'll be real honest. 
I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, this, a uh, couple weeks ago, I was with a friend of mine who's uh, African-American, and he and I are good friends, we were joking, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, we were at this party where there was a swimming pool. And uh, we were sitting there, and he's sitting beside me. I'm like, I know why you're not swimming. He's like, why? He's like, well, black people don't swim. Now, I said that with my friend. He didn't think anything about it. You know what the problem was? There were four other people around that table. And so I picked up the phone, and I called, and I said, hey, man, I, I just want you to know, I did not mean anything by that, and I know you and I are cool, but I just know that, that maybe that created some issues with you know, people being around there. And you know what he told me? He's like, dude, quit being so sensitive. I can't swim. You know? He's like, you were just telling the truth. And I was like, I know, but you know. And, but you see what I'm saying? If you say something and then you apologize, at the worst they can just tell you, hey, it's no big deal. But at the best, you've actually created some forgiveness there. You see, the worst thing to do is to say something and you think, oh, maybe I should say something, and then you chicken out. Because then all of a sudden that creates a whole bigger issue. In fact, in our leadership team here at the JAR, at the end of every meeting, and sometimes people are very passionate about stuff, and it gets, you know, uh, uh, loud sometimes. At the end of it, though, we always ask this question, does anyone need to make amends for anything, clarify a point, or apologize for a wrongdoing of any kind? And then we do that because we don't want to carry that stuff on. I didn't do that in the first five years of the church. I can't tell you how healthy the uh, leadership team has been since we started doing that. Because it's essential that when you're passionate about something, you may say something that's just dumb. It's boneheaded. You didn't mean to hurt anybody, but in that moment you did. And we don't want to do that. So there's name-calling. The second thing that we want to get a hold of is uh, what we call blaming. Blaming. A second area is blaming. Now, this is a very popular area because we live in such a victim mentality culture. And it's easy to avoid responsibility and to blame somebody else for the wrongs that you've done. Now, the next uh, video clip that we're going to look at depicts uh, a son who's angry at his father because the son has, or the father has moved the family from their nice, quiet country house to the big city because he's got a new coaching job uh, to be a football coach. And the son is not very happy about that because it's brought disruption to the family. Let's take a look at the clip. Not much? You got kicked off the football team. Wow, look, you decided to be a parent. Let's check that attitude, Charlie. Look, I don't fit in this town, Dad. I'm going back to Midland. You are not dropping out of school, and you are not walking out on this family. What family? Since we moved here, everybody's been looking out for number one, especially you and Mom. Your mother and I are doing what we think is best for everyone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You did not take this coaching job for us. You took this because you were a loser in college while Shake was out there being a superstar. If you want your shot at glory, Dad, if you want to have it all, you do what you got to do. But quit feeding us this line about being a happier and stronger family. This move was about you. And you know what? I don't have to sit here and pay the price for your life choices. I'm leaving. You're staying. Are you going to make me? Charlie, I love you. I want you to have the best life you can have. 
then that means you are getting a diploma. When I graduate, I'm gone. Pretty edgy. Any of you ever had a conversation like that with one of your kids? You know, it's not easy to say, you know what? It's very easy to say, you know what? It caught, you caused this in my life. Or you caused that in my life. Or your actions caused this. I mean, the blame game began in the Garden of Eden. Long before any of us were around, there was this blame game. Adam and Eve screwed up, and God took on his first occupation in humanity of two human beings. You know what that was? A marriage counselor. He had to deal with these two individuals. And Adam, when he goes to Adam, he says, hey, what's going on? He says, well, it's the woman you gave me. And men have been saying that ever since, right? It's not me, it's the woman you gave me. And then God goes to the woman and asks her, and she goes, well, it was the serpent. He is the one that deceived me. Now that sounds like a pretty nice little story, happy ending, everything's good in the Bible. But as someone who's been a pastor for 16 years, and people have come asking for marital help, and they stand in a, or they sit uh, in my office, it sounds a little bit differently. In fact, a couple walks in, it sounds more like this. How can I help you? And the wife will say, well, he's angry all the time and I can't stand it anymore. And so I'll turn to him and I'll say, well, well, why are you so angry? Because she nags me all the time. She is so controlling. I'm angry because she's always on my case. So I'll turn to the wife and I'll say, well, why are you always on his case? Well, because he rants and rages and has this disconnect. He doesn't want to be close to me. All that kind of stuff. So I'll turn to him and I'll say, well, why do you get angry and rant and rave and disconnect yourself from your wife? Because she doesn't appreciate me. And it's like this tennis match going back and forth and back and forth. They're going back and forth with each other. You know what has never happened in 16 years of me helping different couples in their marriages? I've never had a couple walk in and one of them say, you know, we need to work on our relationship because from my side of it, I have some control issues and I overreact a lot. That doesn't happen. Rather, it's I am the way that I am because of him, because of her. And I'll tell you one of the most disheartening things and I haven't had to deal with this a lot, but a few times is when a couple comes in and there's been an affair in the marriage. The couple will come, they're trying to put it back together, and the person who caused the affair, instead of owning their own behavior, they'll say, well, the reason that it happened is because they didn't meet my needs. Now, that's a huge, big, honking example. But in every one of our relationships, there are those things that are very simple for us to blame somebody else for our poor behavior, to blame somebody else for our choices. And it leaves marriages heartless and hopeless. 
Folks, it's so easy to want to blame somebody else, to push the responsibility on someone else. In fact, there's a uh, proverb uh, which talks about a sluggard, which is simply a lazy person. And in Proverbs 22:13, it says this, The sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the public square. Another translation says, I'll be murdered. And so, I can't go out and get a job. I can't put my resumes out. I can't go out and do something because I know someone's out there to get me. There's a lion outside to greet me. And there's a sense that I blame something or I blame someone for my own irresponsibility. And there's that tension that happens that happens in the relationship. And to be honest, folks, it's one I fall into. But I have a feeling some of you do, too. It's very easy to blame someone else, to pass the blame onto someone else. Now, here's a little interesting word study that I did on that word sluggard this week. It does mean lazy. That's one interpretation. But it also means pain avoidant. Pain avoidant. Now, most of you here this morning would say, I'm not a lazy person. I go to work, I get up, I do the things uh, that a responsible person should. But when it comes to having a difficult conversation, or it comes to confronting someone else in your life, guess what? You're a sluggard. You avoid pain at all costs. That having that conversation could create some issues. So, name-calling, blaming. A third thing that we uh, can create damage in our relationships is around this whole idea of generalizing. Generalizing. Now, generalizing is just making a broad, sweeping statement like, you're always on my case. You never help around the house. Or you always are spending money. And whenever we generalize... With someone who's close to us, two things happen. One, they get very defensive because they don't always or they don't never do whatever it is you just said. And so you need to be specific. You know what I found that was interesting? Is if you look through Scripture, God doesn't do generalizations. He doesn't do this whole never, always, except when it comes to you. I am always with you. I will never walk away from you. He is with you. But when it comes to things in our life that He says, I need to be able to correct them on or confront them on, He's not general. He's very specific. He says, you oppress the poor. You worship false gods. You tell lies to one another. You hurt each other. You see, He's very specific, very focused. And yet at the same time, he calls us back with never and always just to say, I'll never leave you. I'll never walk away. I'll always be with you, even to the ends of the age. So try to remember in your communication the importance of generalizations. Stay away from making them because it just cuts a person off and it hurts them. For example, let's say that you have a person in your life and they don't use their money very wisely you could respond to them in one of two ways. One way you could say is, you're just always irresponsible with money. Or you could say, 
you know, when you don't pay the visa bill, it causes a little problem. So I want to be very specific about the visa bill. Please pay it. Okay. Now let's look at the next clip here uh, that deals with generalization. And see if you can pick out a few statements that are made there of the Baker family who wrestles with the tragedy that has taken place when a young boy has lost his frog to death. Let's look at it. Okay, everybody, I know it's been a difficult day, but I need all of you, and I would really appreciate if you could just put on happy faces, all right? Everything's great. We're a big, happy family. And if you can remember all the lines, I told you nice things to say to Oprah, love your hair, things like that. If you can't remember, don't say anything. Big smiles. Let me see them. Mom, Beans is dead. Nobody cares about your stupid frog right now, FedEx, okay? Stop calling me that! What's, what's the name of this segment again? Uh, one big happy family? Okay, I'm calling Oprah's people right now. All I'm saying is, is families are inevitable. It's like death or taxes. Does that mean you don't want children? Should Leave him alone. Hello? Look at this. They're monsters. Ow. Ow. Honey, you can't want this. That's why you're with me. It's the farthest thing from a happy family. Sleep on the couch. You read my mind. Daddy, are you and Mommy going to get a divorce? Did you pick up on some of those? They're monsters! Big generalization. Um, nobody cares about me. This is supposed to be one big happy family. Big generalizations. Look at this next powerful scripture in Proverbs. It says this. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. Folks, when you generalize, you don't use good judgment. You don't use good common sense. That's why you have to be specific. Another area where we cause damage in our relationships is critical comments. Critical comments comments. Now, most of you probably are looking, you're like, hey, I can work on the name-calling thing, and I can work on the blaming thing, or the generalizing kind of thing, but 
critical comments. I mean, it's hard to be in a relationship with anyone without being critical at times to push buttons in a certain area. And we don't realize it, but critical comments can last for years, can last for decades. The first church that I pastored in Flora, Indiana, uh, was uh, a town in which there were about 2,000 people, and there were more hogs than people in the county. It's the largest uh, pork-producing county in the state. And uh, there was a a woman that attended our church who uh, came to me one day, and she said, hey, I'd like to sit down and talk with you. Real professional woman, uh, very intelligent, very attractive, very kind. And she came into uh, one of the sessions and she sat herself down and she said, I don't like my body and my body image and I'm really having a hard time because I have a big butt and big hips and an ugly face. And I was 23 and I'm like, whoa. And then she went on to tell me that she just never looked into the mirror because she didn't feel like God loved her. So I shared with her, I said, well, do you believe that God created you? And she said, yes. I said, do you believe that God creates junk? She goes, no. And I said, so if God created you and you believe that you're not junk, then God must have created you to be beautiful. She kind of put her head down. And so I said, God only creates beauty. And I said, here's your homework assignment for the next month. Each morning I want you to wake up, because that's the time, at least for most of us, we look in the mirror and we're like, in the morning, ugh, you know? And I said, I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to say this. I am God's daughter and I'm beautiful. And so a month went by, she came back, we sat down, we were talking, Uh, just kind of short talk, and then all of a sudden I said, well, how did that homework assignment go? And all of a sudden she started bawling, just crying. And I said, well, well, what's wrong? And she said, the first day that I looked into the mirror and I said, I am a daughter of God and I am beautiful, I immediately heard a voice that said, you're a fat baby elephant. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm like, oh, did I hear that correctly? Is there something going on here? And so I asked her, I said, well, where did that come from? And she told me that almost every single day, her mom, who struggled with body image issues also, would get up and she would say, we're all just little fat baby elephants, aren't we, Betty? And Betty would have to say, yes. Folks, those comments affected her life for 20 years. And she just developed this pattern that she saw herself as junk because of that wound. The Bible says this in Colossians 4, 6, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Our words should be encouraging and beneficial to a person, not edgy and critical. Look at this next uh, video clip. It's uh, the parents, Kate and Tom Baker. And what we'll find is that Kate has uh, sold this best-selling book. And she is an author, and uh, for her entire life, she supported her husband in being a football coach. But now she wants to go and develop her own career. And in the midst of doing that, 
uh, he's having a hard time kind of supporting her. So let's check this out. I just, I can't believe you let things get this bad around here. I, I can't believe it. What can I say? You didn't pick the perfect moment to have a career. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not even going to touch that hypocrisy. That's, you told me to go to New York. Do you remember that? Mr. I can handle it. Everything will be okay. Go, Kate, go. Help me, would you? You're telling me you didn't want to go to New York? No, I want a lot of things. So do you. That's the problem. This isn't working. Yeah, that's my point. I meant the zipper. Let's just get through the next hour, okay? Fine. Fine. Wow. Look at those critical comments there. You know, there are a few ways that we can handle criticism. And uh, one of those is typical of most people, and that is we avoid it. I bet if we took a survey right now, there would be many of you who just avoid it. The criticism comes, the confrontation comes, and you avoid it. A second thing we tend to do is what we just watch. Somebody says something, it gets under our skin, we go back at them, they come back at us, we come back at them, and all of a sudden we want to be right, and so we'll put them to the ground if we have to, to be right. And things get out of control. And you know, I found though, that in most situations when someone criticizes me, there's usually a little bit of truth in it. Now it might only be 1% or 2%, but there's a little truth in that. And if I don't kind of, you know, take all of it in, but I just pause for a second and I do some self-reflection, I often can look and say, you know what? There's some truth there. And what that does is it puts everything down so people aren't getting so heated and then we can be more productive in our conversation. For example, if my wife comes to me and says, I'm so frustrated that you don't clean up around the house. You make a mess everywhere where you go. Now, that's just an example. That's not really me, okay? I'm just using that as an example. But I could, rather than initially reacting, I could pause and say something like, you know, there is a little bit of truth in that. Sometimes I just throw my stuff around and I don't even worry about it. I just leave it there. I leave it as a mess. If you can own just a little bit of what the person is saying, it can take the edge off of a conversation and it can become more productive. And let me just say this uh, to you, and especially to guys. The tone in which you say things is extremely important. My wife tells me all this time, Chris, I was ready to hear what you had to say. It wasn't what you said, but it was the tone in which you said it. And tone is extremely important if we want to have healthy relationships. Well, here's the last area where uh, there can be damage, and it deals with anger. Anger. Words are powerful, and if we're not careful, they can become outbursts of anger. We just burst out and we spew stuff out, and it gets toxic on other people. Proverbs 29.11 says this, and uh, let's read this one together. Fools give full vent to their rage. But the wise bring calm in the end. The Scripture is saying you're a fool if you just fly off the handle. If you let your anger spew out everywhere. 
You're not wise. You're not cool. You're actually dangerous and toxic. Now, Chuck Mock, who's our Celebrate Recovery ministry leader and who helps with some of the teaching here, uh, was kind of getting a little bit upset because I got to choose the Titanic as my favorite movie a couple of weeks ago. And so he wanted to use his favorite movie, and uh, I think we have a, a thing of it there. Father of the Bride is Chuck's favorite movie. Um, make sure you tell him that when you see him. And um, there is a scene in there that deals with this whole issue of how anger can just go full circle if uh, we don't handle it. Let's take a look. for dinner. Sure, that was all I needed. A busy supermarket. I needed to drive, mellow out, get my mind off the wedding. But mellowing out was not in the cards. Excuse me, sir. What are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I want to buy eight hot dogs and eight hot dog buns to go with them. But no one sells eight hot dog buns. They only sell 12 hot dog buns. So I end up paying for four buns I don't need. So I am removing the superfluous buns. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but you're going to have to pay for all 12 buns. They're not marked individually. Yeah. You want to know why? Because some big shot over at the Wiener Company got together with some big shot over at the Bun Company and decided to rip off the American public. Because they think the American public is a bunch of trusting nitwits who'll pay for things they don't need rather than make a stink. Well, they're not ripping off this nitwit anymore because I'm not paying for one more thing I don't need. George Banks is saying no. Who's George Banks? Me! Why don't we just calm down now, sir? I'll tell you why we don't calm down. Because you're not excited. It takes two people for a we to calm down, doesn't it? Uh, that I don't know, sir. I'm just the assistant manager of a supermarket. But I'll tell you this. If you don't pipe down and pay for those buns, I'm going to call the police. Oh, right. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, right. That's right. Hey, right. Hey, hey, come here. That was the low point. Flipping out over four hot dog buns. So throughout the movie, he's uptight because his daughter's getting married. And all of the anger adds up to a point where finally he just explodes. Now, that's really funny in a movie, but it's not very funny when it happens in our families, is it? It's not very funny when it happens in our marriages. I can still remember a time when Jennifer and I had just got engaged, and I was working at a a playground factory. And during that particular week, the boss decided to change my name from Chris Bunch to Son of a Bunch, but he didn't say Bunch, by the way. And he rode me the entire week, and that was all he called me by. My name was never Chris during that week. And when I got to the end of the week, I had uh, interviewed for a teaching job, and I thought for sure I was going to get it, and I got a rejection notice saying that I wouldn't get it either. 
And my spirit was crushed, and I was filled with anger. And here comes my soon-to-be bride. She comes, and she talks about, uh, you know, making a dinner and that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't want the dinner, and just, like, go off in front of her, yelling, screaming, and going on. Proverbs 18.14 says this, The human spirit can endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? So many times in our work, in our family, people are walking around with broken spirits, and we can trace it back to some type of event in their life that has caused an out-of-control anger. That's why I think James's words are so powerful that we looked at in the very first week in James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. Is that what it says? Some of you didn't even read it. Did you? You're like, oh, that sounds good to me. You know why? Because that's the way you act most of the time. That's the way that I act most of the time. Slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to get angry. But the verse says, be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Quick, slow, slow. It's like a dance. Quick, then slow, slow. Quick, slow, slow. In fact, let's all of us uh, repeat those three words together. I would have a dance phase, but we're not going to do that. Um, So quick, slow, slow. On the count of three. One, two, three. Quick, slow, slow. Again, quick. Slow, slow. Again, quick, slow, slow. In the last two weeks, we've been talking about the tongue, and it's essential that you have that dance if you want to tame your tongue. James reminds us of this. People who have been able to tame every kind of wild animal, bird, reptile, and fish, but no one has been able to tame the tongue. But today, I hope through some of the practical examples, things that I've shared with you, that you can take the object that is most difficult to control than any other object in the world, the tongue, and go forward. Now, I'd like to uh, give you uh, kind of a picture of this by uh, showing to you uh, what we have in front of us. This is some wood from my house. And this is a gasoline tank. And what happens sometimes with our words is that we get in an angry situation. Someone's angry. They're upset. And we have a choice. One of the choices is we take the gasoline and we pour it on there. I didn't set him up to do this. This is apple juice, by the way. Scared you, didn't I? This is the apple juice, okay? And so we pour a little bit on, and initially, there's just a little spark, just like that. But eventually, if I lift this thing, that's why he moved, eventually, boom! And you see what happens is there's a lot of people that we run into, they just have a little spark, and we have a choice. Are we going to add some more gasoline to it? Or will we choose to have words that bring cool water to a situation? And you have a choice. Every single time you enter into a conversation where there's conflict, will you add will you add some gasoline or 
will you give cool, calm water? And it's your choice. It's your choice this week. Which one will you choose? I'd like to close by just giving a uh, couple of scripture verses here. Because one of the problems people have too sometimes is they're like, oh, well, I shouldn't add any gasoline to any confrontation, so I just won't confront. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says don't confront. It just says when you confront, do it a certain way. And this is one of the ways. Proverbs 15 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. It gushes foolishness. And the whole key when you're in a conflict with someone is go directly to that person. But you know what we typically do? We go around the person. And we, this is how we try to deal with our conflicts. We try to text it out. That's stupid. Don't do that. We try to send something on Facebook. Oh, hallelujah. If you've got an issue, go directly to the person. And why do we say that? Because that's what Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said these words, If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You start with the person, folks, not the public. Who cares about the public? The issue is with the person. And we have used this as much as we can here at the JAR since the very early days. If you have an issue and you come to me, but your issue is with Joe, don't talk to me, but you're the pastor. I know, but I'm not Joe. Go talk to Joe. And I hope that you'll encourage people when they're asking or they're saying things, say go directly to the person. Because if out of control anger takes over... It brings destruction. It lights it up. I'd like to close by just having you see one more uh, clip from Cheaper by the Dozen. And it centers around the power of words that are not spoken. You see, there's some real power in words sometimes that are not spoken. And sometimes it's our body language. Sometimes it might be a note that we send to somebody, an encouraging email but it can have a huge impact on someone's life. So let's go ahead and take a look at this clip. Resigning after the season shake. Giving up the dream. Just going with a different one. No regrets? If I screw up raising my kids, nothing I achieve will matter much. Thank you. 
make an announcement at the end of the week. Come on, keep the assembly line up here. We've got to get this done. Where's Dad? He went to the game. Why didn't he ask us to go? Because he didn't want you to be there on the day that he quits his job. He's quitting his job? Mm-hmm. What would we have to do so he wouldn't quit? I'll give up clarinet lessons. I'll totally go back to hand-me-downs. I'll stop playing Okay, ease up, everybody. Listen, Dad's a big boy, and he makes his own decisions, and he's doing this because it's what he wants. In that case, I totally take back what I said about the hand-me-downs. Yeah, I thought so. Anybody else want to take back their offer? Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. first person to step up and use words that build people up rather than tear them down. And sometimes it may not be words at all. A note, something that encourages. Because at the end of the day, folks, every single conversation we enter into, we have a choice. When things get tough and there's some kind of anger, do we add gasoline? Or do we say, no, I'm just going to pour the words of refreshment and love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and understanding. Let's have some empty jugs this week in the conversations that we have. Let's stand for closing prayer. I invite our uh, prayer team to come up. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray with you. Um, So they'll come up and let's pray. God, thank you so much for the teaching this morning. I know it's something that I've needed a reminder in my own life about. Help us to put into practice what we learned today. Help us to build each other up rather than to tear each other down. Free us from 
blaming and criticizing and generalizing and just spewing out anger all over people. Help us this week, God, to have conversations in which we're able to pause, seek your wisdom and guidance, and to use that in each moment. Help us be sensitive to your spirit and express words of grace and truth to the people that we know and love by pouring out your words of peace and gentleness upon them. We pray this for Jesus' sake. In his name, amen. If you can help us uh, pick up a chair and help a little bit, that'd be great. And uh, if you're here for the first time, please stop by Guest Connections. We have a free gift for you. Can't